Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode 12. I'm not familiar with that expression. A few pieces of news from around the Rust community to kick things off. First, a project which has been going for a while, but that just came to my attention this week, is the Redox Operating System. It's a Unix-like system which aims for broad but not total compatibility with Linux, and it's built entirely in Rust. I'm hoping to give it a whirl sometime this week and see how it goes, and the project is actively looking for contributors, so if that sounds interesting, you might check it out as well. Second, Mozilla announced this week that Servo, their research web renderer built entirely in Rust, will be shipping in alpha as part of a full web browser using the engine in June. That's extremely interesting because of some of the associated performance implications. The engine is written entirely in Rust, and so it's simultaneously safe, fast, and parallelized. I'll link a video showing some pretty incredible GPU-powered web rendering the team has been doing, and which is, wonderfully enough, totally safe and also highly parallelized because it's written in Rust. Third, Wired had a fascinating look at some ongoing changes with Dropbox's cloud infrastructure this week, and one of the revelations was that the Dropbox team, which has made extensive use of both Go and Python in the past, now also uses Rust in their stack. As it turns out, Rust's combination of safety, performance, and low memory footprint made it a really good choice, a perfect choice, dare I say, for some of their most absolutely demanding software as they build their own cloud internally. It's a great read, so I'll link the article in the show notes. It's fun to see Rust picking up more and more traction as we head on toward the one-year mark from the 1.0 release of the language, coming up in May. Now, into the meat of the show. One of the points I've frequently alluded to over the course of the show so far is that Rust is an expression-oriented language. Most of the other languages Rust superficially resembles C, Java, Python, C++, C Sharp, PHP, JavaScript, etc. have in common that they are basically statement-oriented languages. Each of those languages, whatever its other strengths and weaknesses, treats statements as its base unit, so to speak. Even when you add in substantial sophistication around objects, for example, you are still proceeding primarily by way of saying, do A, then do B, then do C, and so on. An unterminated expression is actually a compiler error in most cases in most of those languages. Don't forget your semicolons, unless, of course, it's Python or JavaScript, for different reasons. Rust, like many functional languages, treats expressions as the more core building block. To be sure, we have statements at our disposal, but as we'll see, in every corner of the language, expressions come to the fore. Let's look at the major examples of how this plays out in Rust. If expressions, match expressions, general block expressions, and function expressions. Many languages you may be familiar with have ternary expressions. In languages with C-like syntax, these are usually denoted by an expression that evaluates to a Boolean, followed by a question mark, an expression whose value is used if the Boolean is true, followed by a colon, followed by an expression whose value is used if the Boolean is false. 
These are handy, even though the syntax is hard to describe verbally, because they let you directly assign the result of that expression to a variable or constant. If you use a normal if statement in those languages, you have to assign the value within the body of that if statement and any alternative else or else if clauses, and that can get repetitive. With a ternary, you can skip that step, and that is especially nice when dealing with languages where you have to declare the variable before assigning to it, as you do in C, Java, C Sharp, and so on. Rust doesn't have a special ternary operator or structure. It did once upon a time, but it was removed. Why, you might ask? Because it was completely redundant. All if blocks in Rust are expressions. An unterminated final expression in the block is treated as the value of the whole block and can be assigned directly to a variable name. So you might write, let foo equals if bar 42, else 3.14159265358979 and the value of foo would either be the answer to life, the universe, and everything, or a good enough approximation of pi for astronavigation in our solar system. Again, the final expression of any if block is evaluated as the final value of that block, and this will be a recurring theme as we look at other kinds of blocks. What about an if block which concludes not with an expression, but with a statement? That is, what if you just have a branch to carry out some varying sets of imperative logic depending on some condition? Well, the if block still has a value in that case, the empty tuple, sometimes called the unit type in various documentation and blog posts you'll see online. As it turns out, even statements in Rust have a type. It's just that the type of a statement is, again, the empty tuple, the unit type. That's basically a valueless type, but it's still a type. So, the evaluated result of an if block, which is just one or more statements, is also just the empty tuple type. Of course, you're probably going to just ignore that value, as it's not very useful, and that's fine. It would be kind of weird not to ignore it in that case, actually. The point here is simply that even something that in other languages wouldn't be an expression at all, a statement, still has a type in Rust. It's still an expression that evaluates to a type and sort of a value. Now, essentially everything we've just said about if blocks is equally true of match blocks. They aren't match statements, they're match expressions. Thus, you can assign the result of a match expression. So, if you were matching on a boolean named bar, you could write let foo equals match bar with the body of the match expression having arms for the true and false cases and simple values or some long complex block resulting in a final expression or anything in between. But as long as the final element in the body of each match arm block is an expression, it'll be assigned correctly. And of course, because of the strong types and good type inference Rust has, which we talked about last time, if you get mismatching types assigned this way, you'll get a compiler error, and a pretty clear and informative one at that. These same things are true of generic blocks too, actually. This means that you can treat all blocks as the expression they evaluate to, with an important caveat I'll get to in a moment. But if you create a standalone block within a function, which you can do by just writing opening and closing brace around some set of statements and an expression at the end, you can assign or return that final expression from that block, just like you can from an if or a match block. Now about that caveat, 
strictly speaking, this applies to all blocks, but it doesn't necessarily play out exactly as you might expect from the way I just said it when you get to loop constructs like loop, while, or for. Loop constructs do have an evaluated type and value, but it's always the unit type, that empty tuple. I strongly suspect that's because it wouldn't be especially clear or easy to reason about what the final expression value would be in loop constructs, especially if you start thinking about early breaks, which would lead to some pretty strange syntax requirements to be able to specify what the final value of the block should be. Still, this overall pattern, non-loop blocks evaluate to their final expressions type and value, that pattern opens up some very powerful ways of thinking about what our code does. Before we get into those patterns of thinking, though, let's take a minute to look at what is, at least to me, the most interesting consequence of that principle. That is, the way that functions are evaluated as expressions. Note that functions, whether standalone functions or closures, are blocks, so they are evaluated as expressions. And this actually explains a few things you've seen if you've looked at any substantial amount of Rust code, and it makes sense of some things we've skipped over in earlier discussions of functions on the show. First, the reason that you don't need a return statement at the end of a function to return a value explicitly as you do in C or Java or Python or so on, is because functions are expressions. Sometimes you'll hear or see people talk about this in terms of quote-unquote implicit returns, and that may be technically accurate in a way, but in my opinion that's not really the best way to think about it. Instead, just as with other expression blocks, the function evaluates to a value and a type, and that type and value combination is the type and value of the final expression in the function, or if you have a function with no explicit return type, the empty tuple, the unit type. If you're thinking about it this way, the return keyword just exists so that you can specify an early exit from a function and say what the function expression's value should be at that particular exit location. Functions are just expressions like all other blocks, and return has the same kind of role in them that the break keyword and statement does in a loop construct. Second, thinking back to some of the things we looked at last week, this helps us understand how to think about the type of a function even more clearly. A function has a given set of inputs and a specific type as its output. Even when we don't specify the return type, it still exists. It's just, implicitly, the unit type. And this reality that we can think of functions and other blocks as expressions which simply have the type and value of their final internal expression provides enormous power for reasoning about our code. The fallout of all of this is, in fact, something that our friends over in Lispland have known for a long time. And of course, it's not the glory of nested layers of parentheses. No offense, Lisp fans. No, it's that when everything is an expression, you can start thinking about the building blocks of your program in a new way. Loops, conditionals, function calls, and so on are just like the expressions we are familiar with from other languages, though with the necessary caveats I noted above about loops in particular. When you look at a program in Python or Java and see the number 2, or a simple string concatenation, or a mathematical operation, you know how to reason about that. As an expression, you know it has a value and a type, and even though the value may depend on other things in the program, it's still just a value of a given type. 
in languages where more things are expressions, you can start thinking of all of them in that same way. In principle, a function call ends up being no different than addition or subtraction or string concatenation. Neither is any other kind of block. They're just expressions. Now, there are qualifiers to that, of course. If you write a function which modifies a value you pass into it, or modify things inside loops or conditionals declared outside of them, you can't think of them quite as simply as just that expression value. They have side effects. But note that that's true of statements which include expressions in other languages, too. Expressions can have side effects, and if you have side effects, you have side effects. That is, for example, why it's a bad idea to modify a pointer, say with a pre- or post-increment operator, while you're doing something with the pointer's contents on a single line in a single statement in C or C++ code. It makes it much harder to understand what's going on in statements like that because there are side effects. So, Yes, all sorts of expressions can have side effects, but wherever you avoid those kinds of side effects, you can think about the terms as straightforward expressions. In Rust, that means that anywhere you're not dealing with data declared as mutable, you can evaluate those blocks as pure, side-effect-less expressions. That, in turn, makes it far easier to treat all of these things as composable expressions with types and values, whether those expressions are functions or numbers or strings or whatever else. So we can glue them together in whatever way is most useful and effective. And if we've made careful choices about mutability, by which I basically mean avoid it in general and make it obvious where you do use it, we can then see very clearly and quite explicitly what kinds of transformations we are applying to the data under consideration. All of this, remember, just comes out of the fact that Rust is an expression-oriented language where nearly all of the constructs are expressions which have types and potentially values. It's fantastic. As an aside, I had gotten so used to thinking of functions as expressions whose value is just that of their final expression that it got me in a little bit of trouble in an interview a while back, as I mentioned in a bonus episode a few months ago. I was writing JavaScript for the interview, after a month in which I had been writing a lot of Rust in my free time, and I spent about two minutes trying to figure out why a function wasn't behaving as expected. The interviewer, finally, and thankfully he was gentle and sympathetic about it, pointed out that I didn't have a return statement. I had become used to thinking of functions as having values, and those values simply being the value of the final expression in the function. That way of thinking is powerful and useful, and once you get used to it, you miss it when you don't have it, whether in JavaScript or Python or anywhere else. Next time, we'll make a long-promised foray into the challenge that is dealing with lifetimes explicitly in Rust. Time to buckle up. Thanks to Hamza Sheikh and Chris Palmer for sponsoring the show this month, and you can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash or you can give a one-off contribution at Venmo, Dwala, or cash.me. You can find links to each of those, to other things mentioned on the show, and notes and detailed code samples illustrating expressions at neurastation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at neurastation, or you can follow me there at Chris Kreitschow. You can help others find the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, recommending it in another podcast directory, tweeting or sharing about it on social media, or just telling a friend. 
Thanks again to folks who have submitted pull requests, fixing typos or bugs that came up from a Rust nightly build in the show notes. I continue to deeply appreciate your pull requests, and I also love hearing from you. Do say hi on social media, or you can add your thoughts in the thread for the episode on the Rust user forum. And I love getting emails. Say hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding.